Some of the biggest variables to success is a willingness to take chances. You will not gain or grow unless you're willing to take some amount of chance. And I think success, anything gained easily usually isn't worth gaining. And I think success is one of those things. And if you want to be successful, you have to push past the comfort zone and out of these comfort areas because otherwise you're never going to see a difference. It's just like going to the gym. If I just put 20 pounds on the weights every time, you're never going to see a difference. You're never going to reach, get from point A to point B. And the same thing with success, you're never going to see success if you can't push past a level of discomfort and take some amount of risk to get there. The last thing I'll say is attitude determines your altitude. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Ryan Alford and dive deep into hats one, three, and four, the soul, the servant, and the entrepreneur, as we get radical, unlocking our minds and igniting our brands. Ryan is a highly experienced marketing executive and the founder of Radical, a boutique full-service marketing agency that allowed him to work with and guide brands like Verizon, Lexus, Samsung, Motorola, the NFL, and so many other global companies. And if that wasn't enough, Ryan is the host of The Rodcast, a top 25 Spotify and Apple marketing and business podcast, and that ranks him at the top 0.5% of all global podcasts. So, if you subscribe to Ryan's belief that if someone is highly driven and crazy enough to dismiss the concept of impossible, they might end up doing it, and that success is 20% work and 80% attitude, then let's welcome Ryan to The Seven Hats. Ryan, welcome to The Seven Hats. Hey, brother. Happy to be here. Excited to uh, talk with you today. Yeah, same here. You know, you and I have a love for marketing. So I'm super excited to speak with you today and learn from your, what is it, 20 years of trials and tribulations. (laughs) And I'm also excited because you're also a fellow podcaster and not just a podcaster, mind you, your podcast is at the top 0.5% of all podcasts globally, and you're in the top 25 in business. So congrats on that success. Thank you so much. We've been blessed. We've, uh, you know, just stuck with it through the years and we'll talk about that, but uh, you got to crawl, walk, run. And I I think we're walking fast at least. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you said blessed and I, it's not blessed. Blessed is, yeah, maybe, but I know how difficult that is, right? I also know that success is not accidental and so much of it begins during our formidable years. So I think in order to get a good sense on who Ryan was, 
and how he got to his massive success, I think we should start with, Ryan, where were you born? And tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah. You know, I come to you today. I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. That's where our agency is and where our podcast studio is. And I was born in Greenville in South Carolina. I've as we'll talk, I'm sure my journey has wandered through the U.S. a few different places. So I have not, I'm not just born, raised, and lived here forever, but born and and brought up in a small little town called Easley, South Carolina. It was actually our first home, which is I don't know. It was probably population I don't know ten thousand people when I was growing up, uh, right outside of Greenville. Greenville's a little bigger, but a, a small town. I'll say that. And I call, you know, the ripe, the ripe old lower middle class. We were not, I don't want to make it out to be like we were scrounging for every meal. We were not that. But we also weren't what I consider middle class today, um, which is pretty comfortable. Even if, you know, you're living somewhat paycheck to paycheck, you probably have a decent paycheck and you've got a decent house and things like that. We were you know, in a very rural community. Um, my mom drove a Dodge Dart, uh, which if anyone listening knows what that is, it was what I would call a beater car. <laughs> you know? I remember uh, I remember the darts. I remember yeah. the darts and the gremlins. I remember yes, those. Yes. Uh, this was not a fancy automobile in 1980. Uh, I aged myself a bit. I was born in 77. I'm 44 years old. But Grew up in, in Greenville, South Carolina, and, you know, I had a very loving family. I had two parents that worked multiple jobs. Uh, they provided for us. Um, but again, we were lower middle class and grew up having what I needed for the most part, but not very much of what I wanted. Is how I how I would describe my my days. Uh, you know, some kids you know get everything they want, especially now. Um, didn't get everything I wanted, but I had everything I needed. But I grew up with two entrepreneurs uh, as parents. My mom and my dad were both entrepreneurs. Uh, my mom did floral arrangements on the side. She was an insurance office manager. She was not in sales uh, necessarily, especially in her early career. But you know, two working parents neither of which graduated from college. I think I was offered number two in the family that actually ended up going on to uh, graduate college. So did not have a legacy of education that, that came through our family or affluentness necessarily. Again, we were not poor, yeah. but, we, but there wasn't like a legacy of, of money and success and 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 education and and further growth we just had a lot of hardworking, entrepreneurialistic uh family and so i grew up with that i played sports and had natural athletic ability and things that kind of took me places um in that regard you know kind of grew up in a very uh urban area and you know i think if you think about nature and nurture i think there was some nature things that were that were intrinsic in me uh, to become an entrepreneur ultimately i was very uh driven i think almost because again i only had and i don't want to overplay it but you know just kind of coming up with your needs and not getting all the wants i always kind of had that drive to go after the wants however i could get them you know whether it was doing and participating in the yard sale selling baseball cards 
doing different things to make money to, to, you know, afford, you know, maybe the more of the wants that I needed. What's ironic is my parents always thought that I had a little bit of um, <laughs> a high taste for a poor kid. That had Dude, you might very brother. little. <laughs> Wait a second. I got I we got to do a we 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 got to do a little ancestry here because my parents were really dumbfounded when, you know, a 12-year-old would order filet mignon from a restaurant, the most expensive meal. They're like, "Who are you?" <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, my parents were kind of the same way because, you know, I'm going to try to wind this tale to somewhat of a conclusion of, you know, where I was born and everything, but it's funny like you know, the first car that I got was like a hand-me-down from my grandmother. It was like an Oldsmobile car. And like within a month, I had like sold it, added some money to it, and bought a Jeep Wrangler. You know, or a Jeep. Nice. It was actually a CJ5, to be correct. It was not even a Wrangler. It was a CJ, which is actually cooler. But it was always like, I was always like trying to add on to what I had by either working for it, working deals for things, or, you know, had a little bit of that entrepreneurial nature in me. And um, I think that came from the nurture of my parents doing it, watching them doing it, watching them work multiple jobs, but also somewhat, I mean, I don't know, bred in me to kind of have that, have that, that gene, I guess. <laughs> Did they expect you to be an entrepreneur? I don't think so. You know why? Because I think my parents looked at me as having, even though I was not lazy, I played sports. I played outside. I wasn't like a couch potato and, you know, like didn't want to do anything. But school came easy to me for the most part. Um, they never saw me like cracking the books. They, everything came, a, I think, a little easy to me in their eyes. So I think that it was a bit of a surprise that I worked hard enough and kind of made all that come together, if that makes sense. How did you start loving marketing? How did that come about? I think it was like a natural thing because I did. I'm one of the few people that I started in marketing day one at Clemson, you know, and ended up have been in now in the field for 22 years. I was one that I knew my interest in kind of why consumers do what they do, that consumer behavior aspect, um, combined with growing up with parents that were more sales minded. And what was interesting was, I don't know that I ever considered myself a great salesperson, like as a young child. I wasn't yeah. heavy-handed, like hardcore selling and could talk to anyone into sales. I feel like I had a more scientific, I, I don't want to say manipulative, because I, <laughs> I don't want to put myself in that camp. But I think I was more, I don't know, there was more ingenuity, maybe, in my yeah. approaches than... Oh, I can talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere. I think I was creative is probably <laughs> the best way to summarize that. There was a creative edge to me more than maybe a sales edge. And I think it naturally led me into marketing, which is what marketing is, which is, you know, creativity that, I don't know, I like to say marketing writes the checks and sales cashes them. <laughs> I love it. Am I correct? You have four kids? Yeah, four boys. Four boys, we're the modern Brady Bunch. I went through a divorce and had a two-year-old and a four-year-old boy that I have joint custody with my ex-wife. Not a, na you know, no divorce is great, but not a nasty divorce. And then my wife now and I met, and she had a two-year-old son. So we brought two two-year-olds together and my four-year-old 
so all three boys uh and then we have one together nash so they're now uh 12 11 uh 11 and 5. They're absolutely adorable, your wife as well. I mean, just great, great photos on Instagram if anybody wants to take a look. But so the first wife, let's just go there for a second. Was she there when you first started a business or was she there before that? Yeah, I worked for an ad agency for 13 years called EP and Co. It was called Earl and Pimlin when I worked there. They're the largest agency in the state of South Carolina. Started there right out of school, worked there for 13 years. And I opened their New York office in 2008. I got married... Uh, right around that same time, 2007. We'd been married for about a year, and we moved to New York. We kept a house in Greenville. We did have the ability to travel back and forth. Um, it was a good time in my career. I was doing well. They took care of me, and I also had, was kind of a linchpin in one of our largest accounts, so, which gave me a lot of leverage to have flexibility in, getting, in coming back to South Carolina, which where she was from. Both of our families were here, but we took you know a 18-month-old to New York City in Manhattan. Mm. So we were there as I was working for the agency, doing well in my career before I had started my entrepreneurial journey, which was coming pretty soon. Worked there and unfortunately it, it put a strain on our marriage amongst other things, you know, didn't survive. We ended up having our second son, but you know, we were separated by the time my second son was like one years old. So, so you were separated before you started on your entrepreneurial journey? Yes. And was that because you were just working so hard? Yeah, definitely career focused. And I think, you know, it's funny. I, I was almost 29 years old when I got married the first time. Um, I waited a long time thinking, you know, I wanted to get it right, wanted to do it right, wanted to marry the right person. Yeah. And ultimately still didn't get it right <laughs> after all that. And some of that, you know, admittedly, we had some compatibility issues combined with, you know, I was pretty selfish with work and yeah. things like that. It, I wasn't working a hundred and something hours a, w a week, like, like you described, but it was definitely a lot of work. And I don't know that I was focused on the right things. But at the same time, in hindsight, we had compatibility issues that, that may not have shown their head then, that, that a lot of things combined, but I think we would have had, I think we might have landed at the same place. It just might have taken longer. I think yeah. I just escalated it. <laughs> it's so tough. I mean, relationships are tough in their own right. And then you put a business or, you know, or a career in front of it. And it's just, it, it really gets difficult. So, you know, you took the plunge into entrepreneurship, I think in 2018, you know, you launched a marketing agency by the name of Radical. Awesome name, by the way. Let's start at the beginning and find out why you decided to go on your own and leave the safety of a paycheck. Yeah. Well, I'm even going to back you up further. I, okay. uh, I actually started a company called iDrive On Demand in 2014. Oh, wow. That was the first venture. Um, that was the crash and, and burn uh, story. <laughs> yeah. A, a bit. If you're familiar with a company called Carvana, they mm -hmm. sell yeah. directly, uh, direct to consumer, uh, really no dealerships, all online. We had that idea in 2013, and I started a company called iDrive On Demand. We were 100% online shopper base, well ahead of the market. I got started in that. It became a seven-figure business in less than a year. I say because I was a really good marketer, but a terrible operator. <laughs> you know, the car business, especially the U-Cars business, is extremely dirty. If you think that dealers are bad to consumers, dealers are even worse to each other. Wow. And when you're dealing in the used car business, there's a lot of trading of hands of used cars, trade-ins, things like that, auctioning, all those things. 
but it's a really dirty business, especially I, maybe it's gotten better, but in 2013, 2014, it, it certainly was where there's just no honor amongst thieves, you know, like you think you're getting, you know, a car that's got value. They're doing these things and you find out it's been wrecked seven times and all the work's been hidden, like just a really nasty business. And I was really good at marketing. I drive on demand. I knew the concept. We marketed well, which stimulated sales. But ultimately, some operational challenges and really just a lack of passion for the business kind of crashed and burned. Probably lost half a million dollars. Definitely, I almost went through bankruptcy. Didn't have to go through that, but it was close. I we closed the business, but didn't have to. It didn't completely ruin me, but it uh, was definitely uh, the first of the entrepreneurial journeys. And so, when you started Radical, were you scared? Were you excited? I was not scared because. Look, there's certain, I talk about this on, you know, I do a mastermind called the radical formula. And I think there's like variables to success and variables to entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those genes, whether it's again, nature or nurture, I'm not sure yet. I don't know if you can take it on. There's a risk tolerance. uh, I think for entrepreneurs that, you know, I wasn't scared to do it again. I actually knew I would have some learning lessons that would empower me. And it also helped because my 15, 16 years of experience were all in marketing and advertising. So started, if anything, I started with, why the hell didn't I start this the first time? You know, I ventured a little south with the car deal, which wasn't my bread and butter. I knew the marketing of it. I could market anything. But I wish I'd, so I went into it going, this is what I know. This is what I do. I know I can help others. And we have. And so... I didn't go into it with fear. I went into it with more confidence. But I mean, it, you know, it, because I think you have to like, there's something about entrepreneurs. You just get back up on the horse. <laughs> Ryan, it's a gene. It's it's a defective <laughs> gene that, that, you know, they haven't figured out yet. But I was the same way. I was literally going into bankruptcy attorneys with my wife for my first business. Everything was crashing down. A million dollars of debt, personal yeah. debt, some to family. And I'm driving back home one day and light bulb came up and I was like, call my wife. I'm like, honey, I got this idea. (laughs) (laughs) Did she hang up immediately? (laughs) She did not. She actually supported me, which was a shocker. I don't know how many women would. She's an angel. And that led to a very successful business as my current business right now. But, But it's definitely something that I can't explain. Yeah, even with, no, even with the most disparative time, you, you get a chance to, to do it over again and take, take what you've learned and, and do better, right? The next time. Yeah. And what's interesting is I was a pretty good employee. Like I can work for other people. Yeah. That's what's interesting. Like I was, a, I was promoted seven times. I rose through the company, like multiple, a couple of different companies. And was very successful as an employee. And I, I'm not one of those, now that I've worked, I, I, I don't know if I can put the genie back in the bottle, but I think I could. Like, yeah. I don't look down at, oh God, someone giving me orders. Like I, I, I don't, I can take that. So that's definitely not my issue, but it's certainly within me to have the confidence, the ability and the ideas to think I can pull it off though. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, pulling it off, what, what do you think your biggest challenges were building Radical? What, what do you think were the, were the biggest obstacles in your way? I mean, the first obstacle with any business is just generating sales. I mean, mm-hmm. like, no matter what you do, like, you got to get money coming in the door and you got to get sales. And 
finding ways to stimulate that. And then when you get that ball rolling, it's scaling. And, you know, and what's scaling? Well, scaling is hiring, you know, and infrastructure and process and procedures. The one of the hardest things, and it's probably still my, I hate saying weakness. I guess it is. (laughs) I know, but it's like, you don't know, I guess it is a weakness. I mean, but is I hate process and procedure because I know how to kind of like whirling dervish my way through a lot of things. And it's not because I don't set up schedules or I'm not organized, you know, defining every process, I feel like kind of gets in the way of innovation sometimes. But at the same time, as you grow, you do have to have those process and procedures. And then you start relying on others, you know, like Mm -hmm. I have almost ultimate confidence in myself. My wife knows this, which I think and she's wonderful too, by the way. I think that's one of the common denominators you have to have in a spouse with an entrepreneur. For sure. We both have ultimate confidence in my ability to generate a dollar with my own brain and my ability. Yep. But when you start having to rely on others, you know, that's where it gets tough because no one's as motivated as you are when you own the company. And so, and no matter what you do, and that's a hard thing to learn when you're an entrepreneur, you're like, you mean not everyone is into this as much as I am? You mean not everyone wants to think about this all night, every night? Not everyone is thinking about this on the weekend. And not because you, I'm not unreasonable. It's not because I I think everybody's working all the time. But like, you know, but no one takes it like you do. And you have to understand that. But that's a hard- Ryan, say it isn't so. Say it isn't so. <laughs> Come on. You can hire me. I'll think about your business 24-7. I, I can do that. <laughs> Go on. Yes. But yeah, but it's like. And then so when you learn that, then it's, you know, getting the right people that do buy into the vision, that want to be there and provide them a great place to work. And, you know, just the challenge of, you know, feeding them while feeding yourself. Like, and I don't even mean like literally, I mean, it's both mentally, I guess, and physically on yeah. a level. Well, tell me, how, how do you go about delegating and trusting if you're that kind of guy that thinks that hey, no one's going to do it just like me. We'll, we'll probably take 80%. But how do you go about managing those, those people? Because they're in crucial roles. Yeah. And I, I think I'm not bad at trusting or delegating. It's more what the reality of that is. Like I, I'm pretty good about going, here's seven things, and I trust that you're going to get them done until you prove otherwise. So I'm pretty good about not like overthinking if they can do it. It's more just the challenge of the realities that they may not. <laughs> yeah. Not because you doubt that they are, yeah. but because the, the likelihood or the ability of failure is just higher when you have the more people you have that you're handing those lists out to, right? For sure. <laughs> and, then put, and then putting the fires out when I thought you could do all these things and then they don't do all those things, or I thought these would be done at this time period and not this time period. And you know, we've been we've been blessed, lucky. You know, we're pretty good about hiring the right people. We haven't had a lot of like false starts, but you know, there's always I don't know, that that as you grow, just your percentages get higher of the percentage chance of something going wrong. <laughs> yeah, some fucking up for sure. <laughs> yeah. it, it, the, the thing is, most entrepreneurs who start, they don't understand what it really takes to build a business and scale it, right? They just, yeah. they just don't get it because coming from a corporate world, which I have and you have, right? Yeah. In a sense, everybody's telling you what to do. You don't know what a, 
what an invoice is. You don't really care about making payroll. It's <laughs> yeah. all these all these new challenges that that weigh you down as an entrepreneur. But then you have to also manage. So you might be a creative, but you're not that great at a, as a manager. And it's like it's crazy. So it, and everybody's got their strengths and, and and weaknesses, right? So do you think that being a marketing company, you had more pressure to scale your business? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it necessarily has a relation to marketing, but we are, the reality of our business, and we have this discussion, like some of my more senior team, like we have this discussion a lot, like the reality of our business is people-based and it's service-based. And to grow, as you grow and you have more payroll and more things to do, the only way to grow is to get more clients. When you get more clients, you got to have more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't, until there's robots that can do what we do, <laughs> and maybe we're getting closer every day. Talk to Elon. <laughs> Talk to Elon, yeah. I don't know. Like, if we're getting close, like all these AI stuff, writing, writing copy with AI, I mean, it blows my mind. Yeah. And some of it's not bad, by the way. Um, but there's just a human capital component to what we do. If we want to grow, we got to have more people. If we get more people, we got to grow more. We got more expenses, more 401k. And so, I guess in a way, I guess in any service-based business that relies on human capital, there is a pressure to grow because, you know, you could only, and I'm learning this and doing this now, some of the things now with coaching and other ways, like it's been hard to kind of learn how to augment that as far as income. Other than like other things that we all dabble in, maybe real estate or these kind of things, but my bread and butter is marketing. And to, to... Augment marketing is just more clients and more clients is more work. So yeah, you get it. But (laughs) how did COVID affect your business? It was scary. It was scary. Like in the moment when COVID hit, we probably have, we're a boutique agency. We don't have like hundreds and thousands of clients. I mean, we're, we're 20 people, you know, we keep 10 to 15 main clients and then we have project work that kind of augment. And so and that may fluctuate. We fluctuate the year. We probably had at that time eight to 10, seven to 10 mainstay clients plus the project mm-hmm. worked or whatever. And three of them call me when like everything's going down, everybody's nervous. Three of them call me and they're like, hey, we can't, you know, our business has gone. Like one of them was a restaurant. <laughs> I mean, yeah. some of their stuff was like, you know, they went to from here to nothing, you know, like yeah. in, in a flash. Yeah. And like three of them called and said, you know, yeah, I mean, we're just going to, sh- we got to shut down our services. We got, we're, we have no income. You know, one of them was a furniture company. One was a restaurant. There was a couple other things. And I was just like, okay, oh shit. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. You know, like, and we were doing, we were in good financial shape. We had, you know, good cash flow and we could stomach that for a bit, a few months, <laughs> you know, yeah, of course. Uh, but, I mean, but that was a jolt. I mean, I was like, okay, we're not going out of business tomorrow, and we can pay our bills for a couple months. And but is it how many more of these phone calls am I going to get? And who the hell is going to sign up for marketing in the middle of a pandemic? Exactly. So that was scary. Um, So, but the net net, you know, and I think some of my failures and previous things, like I didn't panic. I was very cordial with those i didn't get brash or like you know they were all in contracts but like what gets a 
Yeah, well, it goes to yeah. contract if whoever has doesn't ha- can't pay. You, That's you what know? I like. Say. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> it's like you can have your Salesforce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's like uh, you can have a contract all day, but if they don't have any money in the bank, uh, am I going to hire a lawyer to go get it? Like, yeah. And so, but I was very level headed. I told them, "Hey, do what you need to do. Totally understand. We'll pause everything." Um, one of them, I even offered. I said, "We'll keep doing your marketing. You don't even have to pay nice. us." And you didn't lay off anyone. Some of the government assistance stuff came around. We took a little bit of that, not not a ton stuff that was just like a no brainer. Um, yeah. But those clients that left came back. Some of them in to this day we still have because I'll never forget that I was just took it the right way. And I think I was level headed and all that. And I think the learning lesson there is just, you know, I, I try to live by the golden rule and everything that I do, do unto others as you have them do unto you. <laughs> you know, like, and like literally, I think that level headed approach really paid off in our longevity. Um, ultimately, you know, nothing's, no, tomorrow's never guaranteed, but like, at least our longevity over the over this period. Yeah, I mean, I was in the same boat. We're in the event space with my current company, and we literally lost eighty percent of our revenue overnight. You know, and when you're scaling, and 2019 was our best year. In 2020, we were going to triple. So, Oof. can you imagine? Like, we staffed, we were ready to go, and then literally within a few months, it was crickets for that, probably that 18 would months be scary. Uh, it's scary, know. yeah. Because we were literally in events. We were, we were managing, we were helping manage demos, field marketing, and that was done for 18 yeah. months and it's still kind of still coming back. But, you know, we, as entrepreneurs, like you said, I think the main, I think the one thing that I caught that you said was really important is you didn't panic. Yeah. And when I first went through my initial Black Swan back in 2008, my first company, I panicked. And I was yeah. making decision, irrational decisions because I was acting out of fear. And then now when I wasn't acting out of fear, things were very different. And, you know, when you as a leader, when you're calm, the rest of your team is calm. If you're running around scared, guess what? They bail on you. And it's just, it's, it's horrible. So being a marketing company and having, I mean, if you think about a marketing company, right, it's probably as competitive as as skincare, right? I mean, everybody is in marketing. Everybody's got a boutique shop. How do you deal with your competitors? I don't think about them. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if it's the stupidest strategy ever or just like me. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, it isn't like I don't research things. Like if I'm looking up something or there's an industry or something, somebody's looking for something and it's not our specialty, I get in that sandbox sometimes. But like, I just don't think about them. I just, I keep, I don't know. I, I play offense, not defense. And yep, I like that. And like, I just don't, I'm, whenever I play defense, I lose, but when I play offense, I win, you know, like, and so I don't think about, I, I, I am probably the worst person to have a, a discussion about competition. And what's funny is I live in an industry that's very much driven by competition and like, you know, the ad age and the, especially the, the award stuff and all that stuff is like the me too. And like, look what I did. And like, and I just don't play that game. I just don't. I just don't give a shit. Like I, I'm like, I know what we're good at and we'll go on offense selling that and go after more. I also tend, I, I have my moments. I like, I love to say, well, I'm, I'm just an abundance guy. There's plenty <laughs> out there for everyone. I don't know. I, that would be a fucking lie probably, but it's not because I'm worried about the competition. It's just because I know, you know, it's still hard to get sales, you know, like I'm realist, but 
I don't know. I think very little about the competition other than I do look for it for inspiration sometimes, but I look for it for inspiration and not like, oh, what do they have? Oh, how are they? Are they they talking to our clients? Like, I, I I don't have those discussions. You know, it's funny. I mean, especially in the in the tech space, which was where I am. A lot of my competitors, you know, and people are saying, well, why don't you just take a demo with them and take a look at what they have? And, you know, and then you can see what your competitive landscape looks like. And I'm like, dude, I'm either going to start copying them or they can copy <laughs> me. I'm not going right. to go after and spend my time trying to figure out what, the, what they're doing and copying them. Yeah. <laughs> Let us create, right, as, as visionaries, right, as you, you and I creatives yeah. can do. Let's create our shit and see what happens, right? Yeah. It's crazy. And I will say this. I mean, the one thing that is like, I'll bring this up. Like, it's funny, like you say that, like, literally just two months ago, there was another agency in our own backyard who seems to love to feed off of clients that we either get rid of or whatever. And I don't <laughs> care. But they just always say, hey, did you know they yeah. picked up that? I'm like, I don't care. Like, we're growing. So some, we're outgrowing some clients. So there's some natural transition. They had plagiarized the entire front page of our website. And they're in our own town. And I was like, yeah. how bold is this? Like word for word, like our headings and stuff. And I'm yeah. like, what the hell is wrong? And like, it's just, anyway, well, they got to cease and desist. That was the only time I cared about them because I'm like, you can't fucking copy our website. You Let know? me tell you, there was, there was a company called Promogo that, that came out because our name is Promomash and they came out with yeah. Promogo. The colors, the logo, the pricing. <laughs> I mean, like literally everything. People were calling me up. Are you like, do you have another segment of your company? Like, it just looks exactly the same. It's crazy. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so yeah. Radical Agency, let's talk a little bit about your, about your specialty. So Radical yeah. Agency is known for taking the science of uh, digital marketing with the art of inspired creative, right? And digital yep. marketing has been a buzz for, for so many years now. And I think that although most people think they know and understand what digital marketing is, they actually probably don't. So if you don't mind... Yeah. Tell us what digital marketing is and isn't, and then how does Inspired Creative come into play when making that medium successful? Yeah, I, I'll answer your question, even though I hate the word digital. <laughs> like, because I believe it's all marketing. And the reality is we live in a space where the most obvious places and most the most opportunity to have reach and frequency which are the are the keys of marketing and messaging you have to have reach you got to reach a, an audience yep of a certain size depending on what you sell and you have to hit them with enough messages that resonate with them to drive an action that's media and that's marketing uh, there's yep. a lot more complexities to it than that and today and what we just happen to live in a world, my phone is not handy, but smartphones that are digitally driven. And so our eyeballs and our attention is in our phones. Our phones are digital, so it's called digital marketing. However, I, if I, and the reason I call my, we are a digital first agency. We have digitally native people. We have design and development, and, and we are a digital agency. But I hate the word digital because we're really a marketing agency, which is we help people tee up product and services that they want to sell more of. And I say that because we're trying to move a percept. We help companies change perception, build reputation, or scale. And all of those things happen um, in different channels. They just happen to be primarily digital today. And so 
With that said, where we're differ is most of our agency is built from what I call hybrids. You know, I've come up equally analog and equally digital. I'm in this perfect space. I spent half of my career doing traditional media and media and messaging and creative for some of the biggest brands in the world, Verizon, Apple, Samsung, the NFL, Lexus, Toyota, uh, insert name here. I've worked on their largest campaigns in the world. And that was a messaging and strategy challenge that just happened to be in a traditional print ad, television, outdoor board, uh, events, you know, all of those just happen to be in a more analog space. Uh, but the strategy and the messaging still carry over today. And a lot of our team is built around these kind of hybrid people that have grown up traditional, but now have lived in digital for 10 years. And so we bring the old school strategy and creative that I think, we're, you know, make up kind of the best of the best agencies in America with then now this digital capability, this digital knowledge, this digital, I don't know, specialization to bring these messages alive within the mediums that we kind of live in today. You know, one thing about digital, I know you don't like digital, but we are kind of a digital world these days now when we were growing up, right? What about social? Because I know a lot of brands, including, you know, my brand or initial brand, we had a real hard time coming up with content and, and even thinking that it was, it was going to make a difference. What about posting on social? Uh, how important is that, do you think, for brands? And do you think that social now is kind of losing some of its power, right, with the recent decline of Facebook and Instagram with their, you know, top line revenue. Yeah. I am a big, huge lover of social media. So, and one of the areas that we thrive in, and just to be clear, I don't hate digital channels. I just hate the delineation of having to say digital or traditional marketing. Uh, okay. I love digital, uh, but I just don't like having to have the word. I just want to be known as an, a, a, uh, an idea agency, a marketing agency. But if we don't put the word digital, then no one calls because they must not know digital. Yeah, like, of exactly. course we know digital. So, <laughs> but social media is everything. Um, it, yes, there are downward trends, but I think social has both power that's, that has in some ways been harnessed, but in other ways, the leverage opportunity that it brings for brands and people is still, I think, untapped. Um, it is as crazy as that is to say especially when we have channels still developing, like TikTok, like YouTube. Um, yes, they've been around. Certainly, YouTube's been around a long time. But there's, there's evolutions of these channels that are happening. And even Instagram, you know, is far from dead. Uh, Facebook's far from dead. People love to kind of lump Facebook in this dead category. And then I look at average daily users, and 54% of the world is on Facebook uh, <laughs> it's not still bad. today. Yeah. Uh, not bad. It's okay. That's okay. Uh, so it's called scale, reach, and frequency back to the media. So you want to reach people, uh, they're on Facebook, no matter what they tell you. And so, look, social is, I'm very, uh, and I forget whether it's bearish or bullish. I think it's bullish. Is it bullish when you think it's great? Bearish is down, bullish is up. That's how I remember it. Yeah, bullish. Still very bullish. Still very on, bullish. Uh, on social media and especially personal branding. So I don't know if we were going to go down that channel. It's yeah, one of the let's areas. Talk about personal branding. Tell me about personal yeah, branding. Yeah, I mean, I, I, per, I have a huge following on TikTok, on Instagram, somewhat on Facebook. 
um, certainly on LinkedIn, um, verified on all the platforms, and it's helped build and thrive my business. 80% of our leads come through my personal social media channels um, for the agency. Uh, it's an untapped environment, I think, for founders and leadership within companies because as they elevate their personal brand, the company or product or service comes with it. We have a specialization with the agency for that very thing. We worked with a lot of verified platforms, sports athletes, different things like that that we're growing into. But it's such an opportunity and it's not. I have some friends uh, that we agree to disagree that that have varying views on personal branding and those things. Some people call it the disease of me. And that's because people don't use and leverage it right. It's not about Lamborghinis and, and models. It's about telling your story and being transparent and sharing your perspective and building thought leadership. Whether you want to call that reputation or personal branding or whatever, the reality is these social channels can amplify all of that for you, both organically and paid in a way that pays dividends both in the short term and the long term. You mean the models and the Lamborghinis that these influencers rent for the day for three grand? Yeah, yeah those. <laughs> those. Okay, good. I just want yeah. to make sure that we're on the same page. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what I mean. Uh, you know, me laying on the Lambo, you know, counting my cash, that's, that's a disease of me. Um, me <laughs> telling you because I have learned and had the trials, tribulations, scars, debts, everything else, how I've grown as an entrepreneur and how I can guide you. That's storytelling and adding value. <laughs> and I agree. Yeah. And that's that I've been I've been all in on LinkedIn, you know, for a couple of years now and it's been proving uh very productive and profitable for the business. Um yeah. and just even the podcast too. I mean, it just when you're a personal brand, people trust you and they do business with those they trust and like. So a uh, quick thing about is one thing you you mentioned um in one of your videos, which I thought was really interesting. So Again, you know, I have a CPG brand, had it since 2006. We initially got into retail because online selling was really not a thing back in 2006 and seven, right? Yeah. But then we lost our re retail distribution because of the difficulty in playing in the CPG arena. So when the distribution ended, the time was ripe to pivot to an online store. The thing is that selling online is, again, a different, difficult venture, right? It's just, especially when you're in a space that is as competitive as, as skincare. So yeah. we tried Instagram, Facebook ads, and obviously creating content and, and posts takes a serious amount of time and commitment to get right, as we discussed. Now, back to the day of TV, if you remember, the two, you know, when there were four channels, right? There were two channels on cable, actually, right after that, where it was QVC and HSN. And they were two of the most successful channels because there were little mini infomercials and people were getting, you know, attracted and, and connected with, with the hosts. So where I'm going with this, I heard you mention social commerce, which I found really interesting. So tell us about social commerce. Is it still relevant? I, I never heard of it, but I thought it was really cool. Is it still relevant? And how does it relate to channels like QVC and HSN? Yeah. Well, there's two, there's two things. And I spoke at a FedEx e-commerce event a week ago. <laughs> Large FedEx e-commerce event, back to events coming back. They're back. Nice. I was a, a, a keynote speaker. And literally talked about social commerce. And there's a little add-on there with the word live social commerce. Uh, and I'll talk about both. Um, social selling is a huge opportunity. You have two worlds kind of colliding. You have 
the pandemic, which escalated e-commerce and online shopping like 20 times what was expected over the period. So you have more people in the market willing to shop online. Yes, people have been shopping online for Amazon a long time. They're some are comfortable, but you'd be surprised where those pockets of age are. Now you have everyone comfortable buying online, and you also have the social media channels adding uh, the ability and removing friction because you can shop right in from those apps. And they finally removed some of the barriers and the complexity and the friction that was involved there. So adding your whole product lineup to Instagram, adding it to TikTok, add it to Facebook, so that you can tag those products and they can be purchased right within your feed, keeping them from having to you know click seven times you know to get to what they want to. So you have that proliferation, those two things. Oh, I'm comfortable buying online. Oh, these social channels I have are easier to buy. All of mm-hmm. these worlds coming together, which allow for a huge, huge opportunity, which just now being realized, combined with the componentry of live, going live within Facebook, going live within TikTok, going live within Instagram, which adds this component of them getting to know you better, more personal, more organic, along with scarcity and promotion that you can do in a live format. If you've ever watched QVC, it's all driven by that. You get to know the person that made the product, but there's only 200 of them to sell today, and they're all on sale for X. Scarcity meets product meets getting to know the founder or whatever it is to this little science that's made QVC hundreds of millions of dollars over the year. And now you can do it with your own products and services within these social media platforms. And so I literally was expecting, I went into this, to the uh, event thinking, you know, because I, I do a lot of interaction, like asking people, how many do this? How many do that? And I went into it because this was like some of the best sellers in the Southeast uh, that were at this event. And I was expecting, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, 20% of the audience to say, yeah, they were trialing it, doing all that. None of them were practicing live social selling yet. And I was flabbergasted. I could not believe it. And they were... I had a 25-minute presentation and probably 25 minutes of q and I mean, it was like so many questions because they're just not leveraging it like they should be. I thought I knew a lot about marketing, and obviously I didn't because I had no clue that this was a thing. And then, you know, you got to go back and say, well, who's going to be doing the live presentation, right? Is it the founder? Is it somebody else? Because a lot of founders are shy. They, they don't yeah. have the skill set to do it. Do, do you hire somebody? Like, what would you give a brand like a startup brand what kind of advice would you would you give them if they have a product on shopify every local university has college kids dying to get experience with either internships and all these guys guys and girls you know a lot of them have personalities they understand social media they're already involved in these so they're readily available like we literally had a booth at the ecom event i was at clemson university was there talk about how you can get access to students um, because we knew they were going to get that same question at the event, especially with things that I was talking about and some of the other speakers. And so you got to tap into that. If you have a son, daughter, you know, someone, an employee, you get, this is, just needs to be someone energetic, bubbly, you know, with a personality. And it, look, this is lo-fi. This is not, doesn't need to be QVC quality in a studio. This is literally creating a space in wherever you're at um, having a backdrop or, or even within the, if you're in a store, if I had a brick and mortar store, I'd literally turn any back office into like my little online studio where I'd be bringing product in and doing these little like quick, quick, fast sales on certain things or products you're trying to move 
But you can, this does not have to be like a big hire. And there's usually someone, I mean, if you're boutique or something small, you probably have someone on staff already that might could fill this gap. And then if you don't, you know, hire college aged or recent grad, this, again, you don't need a, a PhD to just have the right personality to do this. And the expectation for the quality of the content is not high. Yeah. It's, you don't have to be QVC produced. No. Absolutely not. It's almost, honestly, it's almost like the more <laughs> crunchy, the better, as I'll say. Yeah. Like, I, it's like down and dirty. Like, they just relate to it. People relate yeah, to it. Relatable. It's, we, it's just relatable. And it's like they're seeing behind the curtain. And they, that's part of the magic of this. If it's overly produced, it, there's actually data that it does worse. <laughs> like, it's, it's too scripted. And it doesn't mean yeah. you shouldn't practice or do things to kind of get ready for it, but it doesn't have to be overly produced. And does that work when you have a small audience as well as a large audience? Or is there a certain size audience that you would recommend having? Well, it really depends on what you sell and how many you're trying to sell. Like if you, you need to have a decent following, if you're just trying to rely on your own organic reach. And if you yeah. don't, then you need to partner with micro influencers. So they don't have to be celebrities. But micro-influencers that have, you know, 3,000 to 10,000 followers that are in your niche, you can hire them affordably to, co to go on live with you and then maybe talk about the product and service. Maybe you give them free product. Yeah, do a, do a live, do a co-live, right? Co-live with them and let them yeah. come on. Maybe you already know they've bought your product or service or they're already a fan and they have a decent following and they can be had affordably. Um, and then you're bringing their audience and your own audience. and then. It also gets shown more organically, so you start to yeah. kind of get that scale. I love that. I love that. A couple of things. You just had Grant Cardone, another cool guy, on your show. Congrats! And yeah. you asked him his success yeah. formula. You know, he said number one: show up and say yes. It's not luck. Yeah. He's like, drop your bad attitude. Stop making excuses, right? And number two, he said, think big. Look for ten x in your life and business. And number three which I loved, and I was a little surprised that he said that, but I loved, he's like, give back, right? Find someone that you can help today yep. because it's not just about you. So as you ask Grant Cardone his success formula, I'm going to ask you, what is your success formula? It's interesting. I, uh, <laughs> kind of building that exact formula right now, it's called the radical formula. Um, and it's more built through the lens of marketing. But for me, I think... Some of the biggest variables to success, I talked about them earlier, the first one, um, is a willingness to take chances. Everyone's risk tolerance is different, but you will not gain or grow unless you're willing to take some amount of chance. And I think success, anything gained easily usually isn't worth gaining. And I think success is one of those things, if you truly think it's going to be success, You've got to be able to take the chances. And I think there's also an ability to tolerate discomfort and an ability to embrace discomfort. And that can be something that's both learned um, and facilitated. One, I'd start with a physical trainer, a personal trainer, because <laughs> it's, so, it's so funny to me. My trainer and I have this discussion all the time. There's so many correlations to like business and life and personal training, which is like, you train the same, you always look the same. So if you want to become, and if you want to be successful, 
you have to push past the comfort zone and out of these comfort areas because otherwise you're never going to see a difference. And it's just like going to the gym. If I just put 20 pounds on the, on the weights every time, you're never going to see a difference. You're nope. never going to reach, get from point A to point B. And the same thing with success, like you're never going to see success if you can't push past a level of discomfort and take some amount of risk to get there. And, you know, I think it's those things. And the last thing I'll say is attitude determines your altitude. And I think there are just people that live so negatively in this negative space and there's always an excuse and there's always like this negative energy you have to get your attitude right your mindset right you have to get to where you believe that there's good on the other side of everything and there's a lot of steps like to get to these places and there's techniques and there's things that we're actually do within the radical formula with my partner Andy Murphy that gets your mindset into these places but it is so important. It's like the combination of those three things. And then it seems like if you get those three things, it doesn't matter what you're going for. Like you can insert, oh, my success means I want to be this. My success means that. But these three things are so crucial that if you do them, you can do any of those things. <laughs> Man, I love that. I love that. And there's probably a parallel answer here. But I close out every interview with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Um, I had to stop thinking that I knew everything. You know, like mm -hmm. I had to, I'm an intelligent person. We're all intelligent people. Like I'm a smart guy. Like, and certain things, like I talked about my younger self, like, not coming easy, but I would, you know, like I was creative and like I can make stuff happen. And like, you know, some of that came easy and there's, and there was an inherent, I wouldn't even call it like outward arrogance, but like some amount of, I got this all figured out. Right. <laughs> and, and I think learning that I don't have it all figured out and I have a lot to learn and I can learn from a lot of different people, no matter who they are. That's definitely the person that I've left behind and I continue to attempt to leave behind the moment that I think I have something figured out is that acceptance that there's so much to be learned and gained. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, I think I needed to become a better, especially like in my marriage and things like that. Like, I think there was this belief that if I became everything that I thought I could be, that that naturally meant I was a good partner and a good friend and a good, like, because that I've always been a giving person. Like I, you know, my, my success, I've always shared money. Like I don't, I'm not like greedy. So I always thought I can just get here and I can bring everything with me. But there's a, a give and a take with that, especially in relationships, that duopoly of, of, I had to become better at not just driving forward, but also handing right and left, if that makes sense. And that in, in kind of like the give and the take of relationships and being, um, I don't know, more accepting of other inputs, you know, and that might be the summary of it all is being receptive to 
outer inputs and going, okay, there's other points of view. There's other ways that are thought about this. And like my way is not always the right way and understanding the nuance of all of that. I hope a lot of those who feel like they're the only king in town and they know everything, listen to what you just said, because it comes from experience and it just, it's, it's awesome to meet, you know, fellow entrepreneurs who, you know, there's so much commonality amongst our journey. Um, but that's why hat number three is all about relationships because without relationships, you can't go far. You need the support. You can't do it alone and you can't, and you don't know everything. And I think that's the wisdom that we've taken from this, from this interview. Ryan, where could the seven hatters find you? Yeah. Um, on all the social platforms, if you look up Ryan Alford, it's, it looks like Alford, but spelled like Alford, like two L's. It's A-L-F-O-R-D. Um, you'll find me. I usually pop up first. There's not many, and I don't even take pride in that. Like, it's not like I'm John Smith and I, I'm the first one, but being verified, I guess, does have its benefits. And, and there's not many Ryan Alfords. <laughs> so if you search for that on that, and then RyanAlford.com or the RadicalFormula.com, either one. And I'll have everything in the show notes. Brother, I appreciate the interview. I had a blast. You're a good guy. And I know a lot of the seven hatters are going to connect with you and, uh, and seek your advice. Again, thanks yeah, for please. joining. Open book. I get hundreds of DMs a day and I respond to every single one. So uh, I'm an open book. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. You've been great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ryan. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And Here's My Takeaway. Ryan quoted the great Zig Ziglar when he said that attitude determines your altitude, and I'm so happy he did. I meet so many leaders who have a nasty attitude, and no matter their financial and business success, they never reach their true potentiality. What is true potentiality? Well, Deepak Chopra tells us that the first spiritual law of success is the law of pure potentiality, and that our essential state is one of pure potentiality. It's pure consciousness and it is the field of all possibilities and infinite creativity. Therefore, Deepak says, success in life depends on knowing who we really are. When our internal reference point is our spirit, our true self, we experience all the power of our spirit. When our internal reference point is the ego or self-image, we feel cut off from our source, and the uncertainty of events creates fear and doubt. The need for approval the need to control things, and the need for external power are all fear-based. So when your attitude sucks, you tap into fear-based thinking and emotion. And that limits your potential and your ultimate altitude for growth. We have met so many leaders who achieved incredible business success due to their genius and extraordinary work ethic. But because of their attitudes, they never reach their ultimate altitude as leaders. I want to thank Ryan once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck and I tip my hat to you.